I have for years been asking trappers to let me put trail cams on their on their snare lines, and of course, none of them will let you. This is Defender Radio. I'm Michael Howie, and this is Defender Radio, the podcast for wildlife advocates and animal lovers, brought to you by the Fur Bears. John E. Marriott has taken some of the most breathtaking photos of wildlife that I have ever seen. He's the keynote speaker at the Fur Bears Gala events, including the Clements Awards on March 30th. And he's been a regular on Defender Radio, sharing stories about his adventures, ethical wildlife photography, and conservation. In the latest episode of his popular web series, Exposed with John E. Marriott, John tackles snares the cruel devices responsible for killing wolves, coyotes, and countless other non-target species across Canada. Links to the video episode, which does contain graphic content, can be found in this week's show notes or at thefurbears.com. To discuss this latest episode, what he's learned about government regulation on snares, and why every animal lover should be concerned, John joined Defender Radio. So let's start, uh, I mean, let's start at the beginning of this whole story. Um, I mean, you're, you're a well-known wildlife photographer. Uh, you are a very compassionate man. You are very much a conservationist in the true sense of the word. How did this story, for this, this exposed episode that's now sort of going viral across the internet, how did it start? It started in a number of ways. Number one, I guess, long, long ago, um, you know, almost 20 years ago now, I stumbled across my first uh, trap line that had snares on it and remembered at the time, you know, not really knowing anything about it, not knowing what it was targeting, not knowing um, how animals died in the traps, uh, really not knowing a thing about it and, and slowly starting to educate myself over the, the last couple of decades. And then this particular episode that, um, you know, has really shocked at people, I think, and, uh, and has, has started to educate the masses on what's really going on uh, behind the scenes uh, in the fur industry in Canada uh, with trapping, using, killing neck snares. Uh, was I got a phone call, actually got a, got a quick message from a group called Wolf Matters who said, uh, and this was just at the end of January this year, 2019, who said that they had just received a note from a, a fellow that had run into a live trap line uh, in Kananaskis country in Alberta and had encountered a wolf alive caught by the leg in one of these snares. And so I immediately messaged them back and said, can you please pass along his information to me? And uh, they did. It took until the next day for him to get back to me. And I spoke with him on the phone and he told me the story and I got off the phone with him and I phoned my little exposed web series team and said, guys, we've got to change our focus entirely. We've got an episode that we've got to do right now. And they all agreed with me and they came down. Uh, I, I actually went and visited this trap line, went and found it for myself uh, a couple of days later, uh, as soon as I could get out there. My crew came down three days later and we went out and filmed this fellow and his friend, uh, that had encountered this live wolf and we just very quickly started piecing together 
this episode and this script and got it out three weeks after we had first heard this story, which is the fastest turnaround time we've ever had for one of our web series episodes, but we just felt it was so important to get out there during trapping season and to start making people aware of this. And this is now um, spiraled and ballooned into uh, a series of there's going to be four more episodes coming now, all to deal with trapping in one way or another. And, uh, and we can really see not only how this episode, but how groups like the Fur Bearers and Wolf Matters and Wolf Awareness, which are a couple of groups in BC and Alberta, um, how this has really started to hit the front burner with some people. And mm-hmm. kind of like we saw with the grizzly bear hunt in British Columbia, where all of a sudden the ball started rolling and things really started picking up. We're really starting to see now groups take notice of this, individuals take notice of this, politicians are starting to get letters and emails uh, and phone calls about this. And, you know, coupled with some of the other things that are starting to go on, you know, we're starting to see um, interest increase in education around hound hunting uh, of big cats and bears and, uh, and things like wildlife killing contests. So this is all coming together and really starting to build. It's an impetus, uh, I think, for for really starting to see the animal rights movement. Um, and, and I'm not talking the PETA animal rights movement. I'm talking to just normal, everyday, regular people um, wanting to see our wildlife managed in a different way. And this snaring video that we put out, it was, you know, it's, it's a pretty a pretty vivid picture just from the title of it. It's called Choking to Death, Killing mm-hmm. Canada's Wolves with Neck Snares. And uh, I think that people are really starting to, to to see what's going on out in our wilderness that that there's been sort of an unregulated wild west throughout Canada uh, for the last hundred years and nothing has changed and it is time for things to change. And what's fascinating is the fur industry and trappers say that they are highly regulated, which is in a sense true in that there are a lot of regulations. However, those regulations do not necessarily come up in the wild. I mean, it's the regulations have to do with the testing of traps and uh, going and getting licensing and what time of year trapping can be done. But that doesn't mean they can't put up 20 snares around, you know, a meat pile or a bait pile of some kind, which is what you've seen, uh, which is what we've documented as well. Um, So while there's regulations, uh, it's, it's still, as you said, kind of wild west. And I think one of the very important things, um, Well, I'd say there's three things from your video that I thought were very good to get out there. One was the experience of the people who, who saw, I mean, they saw the carcasses and then they saw this wolf in a snare. Uh, And I want to ask you a question about that after. And that is a very visceral reality. Um, As you know, some of our listeners know, I spend a lot of time looking at images as they come in. I'm the the filter for our group um, to look at what's come in. How do we document it? Where do we store it? Um, et cetera, et cetera, investigate it as necessary. And it's a very difficult thing to see uh, all of these dead animals, all these injured animals. Uh, and I think one of the elements that came up as well was the, the I love the animation you folks put together. Uh, I said that to you the first time I saw the video of how the mm-hmm. snares work with the bait pile and the animals coming in from different angles. Um, and the third thing, was uh, you were a vehicle for Dr. Gilbert Prue's, uh some of his footage of a wolf and a coyote. And in his book, um, Killing Neck Snares and Strychnine, um, uh, was it Intolerable Cruelty is the, the title? He, uh, he documents uh, 
to, and this was a, an active trap site, legally set snares. He expected them and said they were done properly, and he's an expert in that field. And he hid some field camps around the area uh, and went mm-hmm. back and hid the fact that they were there so the trapper wouldn't know because he's told me the trappers won't let him record, uh, incidentally. Mm-hmm. And when he went back, he saw what looked like a wolf and a coyote who had died, as they're supposed to, on the ground. And he said that's what trappers see as well. But then when he went back, the coyote struggled for over 23 hours before it finally died. Um, And that's a stark difference than what trappers say happens. And I think a big part of it is because they set a trap and then they leave. And then at some point Mm -hmm. they come back. And what's happened in that ensuing time is, you know, it's anybody's guess, realistically. Uh, So I think it was very important for that to get out. Is that what your reaction was? I mean, is that sort of what, when you heard about that, that documentation, uh, did you have that same kind of like, holy cow, this is not what people say it is? Well, I I did have that reaction in the sense that it was documented on a video, but I I already knew that was what, what, I mean, I've, I've seen a lot of struggle sites on snare trap lines. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, it, it's quite obvious when you see a struggle site that something didn't take three minutes to, for an animal to die. You know, when you see chewed off branches everywhere and, and blood laying around and, you know, it's trampled completely for 10 feet in every direction. And, you know, like, it, although it's interesting because in, uh, in one of Gilbert's videos, and I found that the wolf one actually even more interesting because the wolf, didn't actually struggle all that much. You know, it didn't thrash around or anything, but it took two and a half hours to die. You know, it just kept pulling at it kind of and chewing at its leg and, and kind of trying to reach its own neck. And, but, but I'm sure that trapper would have arrived on the scene and the snow would have hardly been disturbed and it would have just think, oh, look, it, you know, died peacefully in 30 seconds, just choked to death. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny, even a, even a human being, imagine putting a noose around our neck and trying to choke us to death, you know, we don't even, you know, we've got super weak neck muscles and, and we're just talking about a, a rope, not some little thin wire trying to cut through. Um, you know, so I, I was well aware that, the, you know, that was basically total BS that, that these are humane and that they're efficient and that they're effective in, uh, in killing things quickly and humanely. Um, and then doing research on, on Jill Bear's book, Intolerable Cruelty, um, you know, you were talking about the regulations and, and, and really part of the trapping industry is highly regulated and, and another part of it is not regulated at all. Um, there, there's no time limits on when they need to check their traps. Um, a lot of these trappers are, are weekend warriors. Uh, you know, they work oil and gas or forestry jobs during the week and then they head out on the weekends in their big diesel trucks and their snowmobiles and everything and they go off and and uh, run their trap lines. And so animals get trapped in them on, you know, maybe a Monday uh, after the trapper has been there on Saturday and put the bait all around and checked everything. And, you know, maybe on a Monday, a wolf comes in, gets trapped, uh, dies by Wednesday, uh, trapper arrives on the next Saturday and just sees a wolf there and goes, oh, great, got it. And, and that's it. And I have for years been asking trappers to let me put trail cams on their on their snare lines and of course none of them will let you mm-hmm. because they know that i mean even though they they won't admit it publicly they know that you know they see the struggle sites they see the animal caught by the leg they see the the cougar caught by accident the grizzly bear caught by accident um, there's all kinds of bycatch there's pets um, they get regularly caught and it's funny in these pet stories 
and we're gonna this is gonna be one of our episodes coming up here. Um, rarely, when pets are caught and the humans are there, do the animals die um, because snares don't kill quickly. Yep. You know, usually the humans have time to go and run and get help and find pliers somewhere, find something to cut the wire and and get the dog out because they just simply do not kill quickly. Um, and and it's interesting. This is uh, um, something that the governments are well aware of um, because killing neck snares are not actually included under the, you know, you talk about the fur industry being highly regulated in some aspects and they have... Um, a standards agreement, uh, the agreement under international humane trapping standards that they signed in 1999 with Russia and some European nations and so on, and yet killing neck snares are not included in that agreement. And the and the the video, the episode covers that, and says that the reason they're not is governments have gotten around it with a loophole by saying that neck snares are actually homemade killing devices, not commercial killing devices, even though they're sold and. Cabela's and just about every outdoor story you can think of that caters to hunters and trappers. Uh, and even though all trappers are selling their furs, so there's total commercial aspect to it. And yet they're using this one little loophole and saying, well, someone could make a snare at home. And, uh, and so they've, they've excluded them from this, this agreement. So they're not actually, uh, you know, governments are well aware that they're not actually humane and that they're not efficient at killing quickly. Um, and that's one of the funny things too, is I can in, in central Hamilton, one of the, I'd say top, you know, what, 10, 15 largest cities in the country, uh, highly industrial sit on my computer and order snares delivered to my door in two days. Um, and that, I think when we talk about regulations again, um, and, and, you know, I don't want to get into a discussion about guns, but if I tried to do that with a gun, uh, there'd be a couple knocks at my door within a few hours. Uh, like yeah. if you want to talk regulated, there are comparisons we can make. Um, uh, but anyway, I find that, uh, that to be a very compelling point. Also the, uh, just as a quick aside, I always say the, the agreement on international humane trapping standards is a trade agreement. It was not made to be a scientific consensus. It was not made to right. be humane. It was made because the EU said, we're not going to allow any furs in that were caught with a leg hole trap. So what they did is they made adjustments to it. So that it's got a thin strip of rubber or a millimeter space. And they say, oh, well, now it's going to do less damage. Uh, it's it's a right. very... And I mean, it, it is it is interesting. It's interesting that you point that out because that is, that is bang on dead true because it... Uh, if you go and look at who was actually present during that agreement, um, you know, it's the trapping industry, it's mm -hmm. uh, it's uh, Trappers Association, it's the fur industry, it's government representatives. There's no representation from animal rights groups or from humane groups or from environmental groups, period, anywhere in there, or any advocates whatsoever on behalf of wildlife. It's just strictly industry that's involved in government. Um, so bureaucrats and industry, and of course, you can see that, you know, why they've excluded the killing neck snare, because that would put a serious damper into the fur industry in Canada. And there are still people clinging to the belief that it's an important industry um, because it's how our country was founded. And, you know, it, it, it's like we're clinging to this thing from the past. You know, we've moved on from hunting whales and shooting eagles and slavery and all sorts of things, yet our society somehow still thinks that, 
killing a wolf in an X-snare so that it can uh, its fur can be put onto the pom-pom of a toque is somehow acceptable. Yeah, and then the, the secondary argument is that it's necessary, and there's a great argument being made now uh, by the government and industry that we have to kill wolves to protect the caribou. And I know you've been very active in this campaign as well. Uh, but I think it's two yeah. two new scientists from Saskatchewan have come out saying we did more research, and this is still completely useless because well, it's one the, one one researcher from Saskatchewan, and then the other researcher is from the University of Montana, and he is oh, okay. actually um, one of the most knowledgeable uh, wildlife biologists there is, Dr. Mark Hebelwhite. Uh, he has worked uh, with Parks Canada um, for several decades in Banff National Park and in studies all over Alberta and British Columbia. And when he comes out and says that killing wolves does absolutely nothing for recovering caribou, um, he's pretty much at the top of, of the game in terms of wildlife biology. And then to have Dr. Ryan Brooks say the same thing from Saskatchewan, um, you know, really that's a, an article CBC picked up and they had to pick up. These are, you know, experts at the, the top of their field saying that uh, there's absolutely no research to back this up. And, you know, just, just this whole um, idea that wildlife needs to be managed in this way, that predators need to be managed in this way. Um, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe if you really stretch things, there's an argument to be made um, where there's human livestock conflict, mm-hmm. um, that, that there are times when you need to step in and manage in, in there. And, and certainly there, there will be. Um, but when you just step off into the wilderness, there is absolutely zero reason that predators like wolves need to be managed out in the wilderness. Um, they're an apex predator. They regulate their own population sizes. Um, so, so this whole notion that wildlife needs to be managed in this way is, is really a, a step back to the 1950s and to this idea that we've got to have our hands going. Um, and it, it, there's all sorts of research showing that, that uh, we don't need to be in there um, constantly overmanaging stuff. Um, that there's all kinds of research indicating that wolves are not the primary factor in deer declines or elk declines or caribou declines. Uh, just as the same sort of research exists for cougars and for for other large predators. Yep, and that's when we talk about that. It's uh, I think again the caribou herds out west are the perfect example of the science is very clear. It is a change to the habitat caused by people. And the only thing that will help them is fixing that habitat. That's the only thing that will help. But um, I don't want to take up too much of your time. I know you are between shoots and projects and time with your your new family. Uh, Congratulations, by the way. I don't think I've talked to you since uh, since then. Um, And um, that must be exciting. A whole new world. It is, yes. Um, Yes. A new environmental advocate to join the world. <laughs> I'll, I'll send a little Defender Radio shirt over. Um, <laughs> yeah. So what can people do? I mean, you, you see these videos. Um, they are extremely well put together. You do a wonderful job hosting. Uh, your team is outstanding. I'm very pleased to have been sort of peripherally involved in some of it. Um, what can people do when they see this and they want change to happen? Uh, there's a couple of things that are really do. Um, number one, um, on our website, exposedgem.com, J-E-M.com, um, we've got a take action page, and it points to all sorts of different things you can do, varying from tweeting to posting on Facebook to emailing directly. But probably the biggest thing that's on there and the one that uh, obviously you guys are tied in with 
is that you put together a call to action, uh, a, a form letter basically that uh, people can go in and put in their postal code and put in their name and sign this, so to speak, and it automatically gets sent to their MLA uh, based on their postal code and calls for an end, a ban on killing neck snares. And uh, we've had a, a tremendous response from that. You were telling me just last week we're up over mm-hmm. 2,500. It's, it's actually uh, over 30. It's over 3,500 now. Yeah, amazing. So, I mean, that's a thousand just in the last week uh, and a bit. So, um, really having a huge impact. And this is politicians across the country that are going to be seeing this for the first time. And that's really the start of it is we have to just start getting this in front of the politicians and start getting in front of the wildlife management, management government. And, uh, and, and that's where change starts to happen. So I think it's really powerful for, for people to be able to know that and to be able to see that, you know, it's really simple. Just go in, um, put your post code in, put your name in, sign it, and it's all online and you hit send and your letter is sent off asking for a ban and uh and pointing politicians to to what's going on right now and i I think it's so easy and uh and that's why we're seeing such a huge response to it so um and we also need people people to to share we also need people to share that video absolutely yeah the more we can get that video out there it's uh we're up uh, almost 43,000 views on wow. Facebook now, um, and we've had, uh, we're up at 8,000 now on YouTube, and YouTube, to have 8,000 after just two weeks is phenomenal. So it, at that growth rate, it indicates that we'll be up around 50,000 uh, by the end of the year um, because it just continues to grow and grow and grow, um, which is just fantastic. So, uh, you know, by the I think by the end of this, once we get these additional episodes coming out, um, we're probably going to be looking at uh, somewhere up close to 500,000 views between all of these different videos, um, which is going to be just phenomenal, the amount of education that we're getting out there and the amount of outreach, uh, amount of awareness, and then in particular, the amount of awareness that we're going to start to raise within the political community. You can check out the latest episode of Exposed, as well as some beautiful past episodes at exposedwithjohnemarriott.com or find Exposed on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by searching Exposed with John E. Marriott. I want to thank all of you for listening this week, and John for taking time out of a very busy schedule to chat with me. I'm working on getting a new lineup of interviews ready, so expect more Defender Radio soon. Until next time, I'm Michael Howie for Defender Radio and the Fur Bears, reminding you to stay informed and stay strong. 